Well, this past week, um, the world laid to rest somebody who in many different environments and in many different contexts was called the greatest. On Thursday night, uh, Muhammad Ali was uh, laid to rest. And I have been watching and kind of soaking in the tributes uh, to Muhammad Ali, um, who was a boxer, for those of you who are not old enough to remember, just watching and, and paying attention to the tributes that come um, flooding in. And Muhammad Ali, on so many levels this week, was called the greatest. He was really undisputably called the greatest boxer that ever lived. Uh, even though he had this crazy unorthodox style with his hands down and instead of bobbing, he kind of ducked back from punches and he just, his light feet and just, he was the greatest boxer that ever, ever lived. But I heard somebody this week go beyond that and say, no, no, Muhammad Ali was the greatest athlete that's ever lived. At least the greatest athlete of his generation, just the, the physical fitness and the, the peak, the, 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 um, you know, the physic, just the way he was. He was just the greatest athlete that ever lived. I remember Muhammad Ali saying once that he hated training, but he knew that the pain of training lasts a minute, but being the champ lasts forever, right? That's the way Muhammad Ali lived. He was one of the greatest showmen in sports. Um, I heard Muhammad Ali this week called uh, really one of the greatest Muslim Americans to ever live. That Muhammad Ali did more to empower the Muslim community in America to give them pride, to give them courage, to give them a, a place in, a, in American society than anyone else that has ever lived. I heard Muhammad Ali said this week that Muhammad Ali did, was the greatest figure in the 20th century for race relations around the world. He did more for race relations than any other figure that lived in the 20th century. If you think about the figures in the 20th century who, who were involved in race relations, um, to imagine that Muhammad Ali was the greatest among them is, is saying quite a lot. It was, Muhammad Ali was the greatest celebrity of the 20th century. I think it goes without saying he was the most famous man on the planet at the height of his career. Um, but probably the, the pinnacle tribute that I heard paid to Muhammad Ali this week, George Foreman, who was uh, one of the boxers who fought against Muhammad Ali, uh, he, said, I was, he said, I'm often asked whether Muhammad Ali was the greatest boxer who ever lived. And he said, and I'm deeply offended by that. Boxing was something Muhammad Ali did. Muhammad Ali was the greatest person who ever lived. That struck me. What would it take? What kind of life would it take for someone to say at the end of your life, true or not, you know, that you were the greatest person that ever lived and to genuinely mean it? In effect, that's really what this series is, is rooted in, the question about what it means to be the greatest. This whole series that we're looking at, this, this is the fourth sermon that Matthew records of Jesus in his biography of Jesus, recorded in Matthew chapter 18. You can turn there if you have a Bible or on your Bible app or whatever. Um, and this whole sermon by Jesus begins with a question from his disciples. Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus, who among everybody else has figured out this faith thing more than everybody? Who is it that's figured out how to follow you in a way that has God honoring them above every other person that's ever lived? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? By the way, Muhammad Ali um, pretty well endorsed every one of those statements about himself which makes him, by Jesus' definition, not the greatest because Jesus says the greatest person who ever lived is the person who's no longer concerned with being the greatest person who's ever lived. 
It was characterized fundamentally by humility. He says, I want you to change and become like a little child who is small and insignificant and who doesn't care that they are small and insignificant. And every passage that we're looking at this in this series, in some way fleshes out what that humility looks like when it's lived with skin on. Right? Two weeks ago, Jeff said that humility means being willing to open your heart and open your life and open your home to be radically inclusive of other people who are small and insignificant, the weak and the vulnerable, the forgotten, the ignored, the marginalized, that Jesus says that that's the evidence that you're living a life of humility, that you don't care you, you don't demand that the people you're in community with enhance your status. You invite everybody into community with this radical hospitality. Last week, I talked about how the, the sign of humility is being willing to radically cut off and cut out everything from your life that even potentially runs the risk of making it harder for another person um, to follow Jesus. That All the stuff in our lives that repel people from Jesus rather than drawing people to him. You're humble enough to say, I don't care about my rights. I don't care about what I'm privileged to do. I don't care about all this stuff. I, I will do anything in order to make it easier for other people to live a life of faith in Jesus Christ. And this week we're looking at the third passage, which basically brings to the forefront the third manifestation of humility that Jesus is inviting us to. It's in Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 10. It says this, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Jesus says, see to it that you do not despise, one translation says, even a single one of these little ones. The word despise in Greek is pretty well the same as the word despise in English. Don't look down on these little ones. Don't treat people with contempt. Don't treat people as though they're of little or no value to you. To despise somebody is to treat someone with disdain. To believe that they are beneath your concern. They are of so little value, so little worth, so little significance to you that it's not even worth it for you to care about what happens to them. And so in fact, when you despise somebody, you end up treating them hurtingly because you're so condescending and contemptuous towards them that in all your interactions with them, you end up hurting them and you end up also hurting them by the way that you usually avoid them. Right? Jesus says, don't do that. Don't treat people with that kind of contempt where you treat them as worthless and valueless and insignificant and small. You don't treat people that way, especially, Jesus says, these little ones, especially the ones that are weak and vulnerable and who get treated as insignificant and small in culture. Don't treat people that way. For I tell you, this is the reason. Why don't we treat people, why don't we despise people? Because he says, their angels in heaven are always see the face of my Father in heaven. Now it's hard to know what Jesus means when he talks about their angels in heaven. There's a lot of people, uh, you can read a lot of literature about people describing how the life of angels in the spiritual dimension works. And it's all speculation. But I can tell you 
is what the Jews generally believed about angels in the first century. And that is, the Jews believed that angels were kind of ministering spirits, it says in one place in the scriptures, who were operative in the spiritual dimension of reality. And their job was to be the go-betweens between heaven and earth. And they were the ones who mediated God's concern towards his creatures. And so there were angels... It seems, as you read the literature, that the Jews believe that there were angels assigned to individuals, angels assigned to specific communities, angels assigned to specific nations, and it was their responsibility to mediate God's care and concern. But what the rabbis used to say was that not every angel is allowed into the presence of God. Not every angel is allowed to see the face of God. In fact, only the angels of the highest order, of the highest rank, are allowed into the presence of God to see the face of God. Which leads me to believe that what Jesus is saying is the reason you don't despise people, and especially the weak and the vulnerable, especially the oppressed and the ignored and the marginalized, those that society treats as insignificant and small and shuffles off to the side or puts out at the curb, the reason you don't treat those people with contempt is because those are the very people that God treasures and values the most. Those are the people that God is most concerned with. That's why their angels are always before or always see the face of Jesus' Father in heaven. It's their angels, the ones that get assigned to them in first century Jewish thought, are actually the most significant, the most important. The angels of the highest rank are the ones assigned to the people of the lowest rank. They're the ones that God always keeps in his presence. They're the ones that God is especially concerned to pour his care and concern on. And so Jesus says, don't you go around despising people, especially people like that, because you will find yourself, you'll find your heart attitude at cross purposes with God. Which I suppose forces Uh, an ugly question to the surface for us to deal with this morning. And the question is this, who do you despise? Who do you treat with contempt? If I can uh, say it as clearly as I can possibly say it, who is it that you don't give a crap about? Because there's people. There's people for all of us. There's people for me. Right? For some of us, it's people who have been in our circle, who have been in our lives, people who've just always rubbed us the wrong way, who always, uh, we just never, ever, ever could get ourselves to think very highly of them. Or maybe for some of us, it's people who have been in our circle and they hurt us. And you know what? Screw them. Maybe for some of us, it's not, um, it's just people we've just never invested that much energy in caring about. We're neither here nor there. Like, it's literally who cares. Maybe for some of us, maybe for all of us with some communities, maybe there are communities of people that we just don't care about, that people bring up First Nations issues, and you're like, whatever. You know, people talk about the migrants, you're like, whatever, they chose to get on that boat. People talk about the LGBT community, you're like, I don't care. Who is it that you despise, that you treat with contempt? Who is it in your life that you think is of so little value to you that they're actually beneath your need to care? Because Jesus says, 
whoever that community is or whatever, however you express that heart attitude towards them, you're actually behaving in exactly the opposite direction of how God treats them because the ones that you are tempted to despise and treat with contempt are precisely the ones that God elevates and holds especially high, in especially high regard and concern. And you get that out of actually the next couple of verses. In verse 12, Jesus says this, what do you think? If a man owns 100 sheep, and one of them wanders away. Will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. Now maybe if you've been around church long enough, maybe you've heard this story before. Uh, the disciples had heard this story before. It's actually also recorded in Luke's biography of Jesus, called the, the Gospel According to Luke. Exactly the same story recorded, but when you actually, reading the stories in Greek is quite interesting because when you compare them in Greek side by side, almost all the vocabulary is different. All, entirely different word set is used to tell almost exactly the same story, which leads me to believe that this was probably one of Jesus' go-to stories. Right? Every preacher has them. If you hang around a preacher long enough, you hang around here long enough, the preachers around here have go-to stories. Stories that we just tell over and over again because we think they're just such powerful stories at making the point that we want to make. And so this is one of Jesus' go-to stories. A story that he told probably lots of times. So the disciples were very familiar with the story, the people listening. But they were also familiar with the story because this is a story where, that Jesus is telling and in telling the story, he's paraphrasing a story that comes out of the Jewish scriptures. Told by the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 34. We won't read it. You can read it yourself or with your life group uh, as you're meeting this week. But Jesus is kind of paraphrasing that story in Ezekiel 34, which is a story about a flock of sheep, some of whom have wandered off into the hills. And the reason they've wandered off is because the community that was supposed to be caring for them, the community that was supposed to be providing love and concern as God's agents in the world, the community that was supposed to be loving and concerning for them was despising them and treating them with contempt. And it was driving people away or driving sheep, flocks, away from the rest of the sheep. And in the story, God says, you know what? I'm going to start being the shepherd and I'm going to go looking for the sheep and I'm going to gather together and I'm going to bring them all back together to be in this flock, the kind of flock that I wanted them to be and I'm going to remove all the people who were mistreating the sheep in the first place. So when Jesus says, so what do you think? If a guy loses a sheep, is he going to go find it? The answer is obvious, right? The answer is obvious because in the Greek grammar, the way the question is phrased, Jesus expects a positive answer, of course he will. <coughs> Excuse me. The answer is obvious because that's what shepherds do. If you have a hundred sheep and you lose one, you lose one percent of the net worth of your flock. You're going to go hunt down that one percent. One percent matters, right? If you don't believe me that one percent matters, the next time the government uh, announces a one percent tax hike, send me an email and tell me that you don't care. Excuse me. <clears throat> but the answer is obvious mostly because the Bible says that's exactly what God would do. But God says, now I'm going to be the shepherd. And I'm going to go out and I'm going to look and I'm going to bring them back home. Jesus is saying, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, it's time to 
humble yourself and forget about all of your attitudes that you've got towards these people that you at the end of the day don't really give a crap about. It's time for you to let all of that stuff go and start acting the way that God does, which is to take those people and to elevate them in priority until they're the most important people in your life. Because that's the point of the story, right? The shepherd leaves the 99 where they are in the hills to go track down the one. Why? Because the one at that moment is more important to the shepherd than the 99. In fact, the shepherd is willing to compromise the care of the 99 in order to find the one. Right? He leaves them in the care of somebody else who doesn't know the flock or own the flock or really care about the flock. Or he just leaves them on the hills to fend for themselves. I'm not going to be gone long. I'm going to try and stay out of trouble. Right? And he's willing to compromise the care of the 99 because he so prioritizes the care of the one. And then it says if he finds the one and brings it home, he's happier about finding that one than he is about all the 99 that never strayed away. And that's what feels unfair to people. People in the church, people who have tried to be faithful and say, how can, how can God care more about some screw-up who's wandering off, wandering the hills, right, walking away from Jesus than he does But all of us who are trying to be as faithful as he can? You know how God can care more? Because he does. <laughs> Last year, uh, Krista and I took the girls to Walt Disney World, as we have in the past, and we, were, we spent a day at the Magic Kingdom, as we, we tend to do. And at the end of this particular day, it was quite a long day, and it was, it was getting close to the end. We'd been there since it had opened, and now it was past dusk. The sun was down. It was getting dark. It was getting harder to see. And we had just come out of this one uh, exhibit or ride or whatever, and Chris and I had one of those two-second conversations that parents had. Listen, what are you thinking? It's now getting really dark, and the kids are kind of getting whiny, and they don't seem like they're very happy anymore, and they're starting to fight a little bit. And maybe it's time to head back to the campsite and go to bed. And Krista said, yeah, I totally agree. Let's just head back to the campsite. So we turned around to let the kids know that this was going to be the agenda. We're going to walk to the gate and go back to the campsite. Uh, And when we turned around to talk to the kids, uh, there were only three kids standing in front of us. Now, I have four kids. So uh, it's a little bit easier to keep track of one and 99. We turn around. We're like, girls, where's Trevi? They're like, I don't know. Like, no, seriously, like, where's Trevi? Did you see which way, like, did she, is she around? Trevi, where are you, right? And the girl's like, yeah, no, we did, I didn't even see where she went. And we're like, come on now, Trevi, where are you? And we're starting to now, you kind of get that annoyed. Come on, Trevi, hey, let's go. Hey, we got to go back to the trailer. Where are you, right? No answer. And it's, like, really dark. Like, it's hard to see people's faces. It's hard to, you know, it's hard to see really clearly, and, and after a minute or two of calling Trevi's name and kind of looking around, the circle keeps getting a little wider, a little wider, and our voice gets a little bit higher and a little bit more strained, and a little bit more tense. And, and after a couple minutes, like we're genuinely on the verge of panic. Like we're looking around this whole area and our daughter is nowhere to be found. We're in Walt Disney World in the Magic Kingdom and we have no idea where our daughter is. And now Krista's you know, mama bear is kicking in and Krista's really starting to get anxious. She's like, come on, Treve. She's like yelling now as loud as she can. Treve, where are you? And this woman comes wandering over to Krista and she grabs Krista's arm and she says, are you looking for a little girl? And Krista said, I am. And she said, is she about this tall? And she has brown hair, maybe seven years old. And Krista said, yes, that's my daughter. And this woman said, I just saw her walking with a stranger in that direction. I don't know who she was with. 
Boom, full-on panic. I bolted to the nearest cast member and I said, you have to help me find my daughter. She's been missing for the last few minutes. We have no idea where she is. I gave him the description and he got on the radio. He started calling, you know, he announced it like generally to all the staff who had radios kind of handing out the description of of my daughter. And basically he he put the radio down and he looked at me and he said, sir, he said, "Uh, as we speak, the front gate of the park is being closed. Nobody's going to leave the Magic Kingdom until we find your daughter. And we start fanning out. And then around the corner comes this woman, a cast member, an employee of Disney World. And she's walking with my daughter and holding her hand. She said she kind of wandered away and when she got lost she found me and said I don't know where my parents are and then I heard the call on the radio and and I helped her find her way back and Krista burst into tears and I burst into tears and we were hugging and, and admonishing and hugging and, and I'm going to tell you something I love all my daughters the same I mean, on any given day, it depends on how they're behaving. But in general, as a general rule, I love them all roughly the same. At that exact moment, I was happier about this one child than I was about the three that never wandered away. I cared more about her safety. I was more concerned about what was happening with her than I was about all the others who had been standing obediently beside the wall. And if that felt unfair to them, too bad. I cared more about her right at that minute. And that's exactly Jesus' point. Jesus' point is, you know that community of people, you know that individual, you know that person that you're, you tend to despise and treat with contempt and look down on in arrogance and feel like they're beneath you and not worth your care and concern? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to start to treat that person with the same kind of love that a parent treats their lost child. Because that's exactly the same kind of love with which God treats that person. So what does that mean for us? In my mind, it means, I would say, at least three things. It means, number one, that God is inviting us to notice. To notice who's here and who's not. To notice who's wandered away. To notice the communities of weak and vulnerable, of oppressed and marginalized and forgotten and ignored people who are treated as small and insignificant in our society who aren't here with us, being loved on by us. We've got to notice. The shepherd doesn't go looking for the one sheep unless the shepherd notices the sheep isn't there, right? Shepherds don't treat their flocks like an amorphous blob of white wool. I don't know, it's Seems roughly the same size as the flock that I left with this morning. No, no, no. The shepherd knows each one of those sheep individually and by name. And the shepherd counts them every night to make sure that every single one of them is still there. And when one is missing, the shepherd notices. Why? Because he cares. And God is inviting us through Jesus to notice the people who are missing. Who's missing right now in your world? Who, who used to be there, but isn't there anymore? Right? Someone who used to be a part of your community, even a part of your life group. Someone who used to be a part of your, your friend community, your faith community. Um, and they began to drift away and you hardly even really noticed. And eventually they drifted far enough away that they were now out of sight and out of mind. And now they're gone and nobody's even noticed. Who did you used to sit behind every week 
uh, when you came to worship on Sundays, and now they're not there anymore, and nobody seems to really know where they've gone. Who, who's noticing the people who are drifting away? Who's noticing uh, the folks that aren't here with us yet? Right, when we, uh, we used to do bus tours out of our St. Catharines location, where we would drive people around the Niagara region and we would show them the stuff that you don't ever get to see in Niagara. We showed, um, we showed people instances of extreme poverty. We introduced them to the homeless. We introduced them to women who work the streets because they need to eat at night. We introduced them to the drug culture of Niagara. We introduced them to families and kids at risk or whatever. And the, the number one piece of feedback we would get from people who had been on the top bus tour was, but I had no idea. I had no idea that this went on in Niagara. And I remember one day saying that to a shelter resident, and he looked at me and he said, the only way you could have no idea is if you intentionally structure your life to not have to see it. Who's noticing who's not here with us? And what are we doing to care, because I think that's the second thing. Number one, God is inviting us to notice. Number two, he's inviting us to care. That's, I think, the whole point of this morning is that in this instance, humility manifests itself as loving care and concern for people that other people are tempted to despise and treat with contempt. To actually care about what happens to them. The reason the shepherd goes off looking for the one when he notices that the one is missing is because the shepherd cares enough to get that one back. Who don't you care about? Who do you know is missing? And frankly, at the end of the day, my dear, you just don't give a darn. We've been on this journey as a community that we've been calling Love Beyond Belief. We're trying to talk about what it looks like to love people who fall outside the church's normal circle of care, the, the circle of, of people that you know we've been trained to care about, there's a, another circle beyond them that we've been trained to not care about that includes Muslims and the LGBT community and angry atheists and people with different worldviews or belief systems, people who practice a different brand of Christianity than us, people who would consider themselves to be our enemies. enemies. Those are all people we don't even consider loving. And we've been having this conversation about what it means to, to actually begin to love everybody the way Christ has loved us, and, and it's been an amazing conversation over the course of this year, but one of the things I've struggled with periodically is that every once in a while I end up in a conversation with somebody or with a group of people where I just, I'm left with the impression that you, you just genuinely don't care. You genuinely don't care about the church's impact on the LGBT community, and actually you're quite content to not have as far as you know, too many members of the LGBT community worshiping among us. You, they're missing. They, you know, have wandered in terms of their relationship with the church because the church has treated them with contempt. And we're perfectly content for them to be somewhere else, on wandering a hill somewhere. We don't care enough to go get them. Who, who do you not care Because Jesus is inviting us to notice who's missing. He's inviting us to care enough. Thirdly, to act. The concern manifests itself in action. It manifests itself in going 
to get them. Right? That's the whole point of the story is that when the, when the shepherd notices the sheep is missing, he cares enough to go and, and find it. Right? This is a story in Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel says these sheep have been chased away by people who have treated them with contempt and I care enough to come myself. That's who Jesus is. He's God, the good shepherd, coming to rescue those who have wandered away. That's what God is all about. And what does that mean then, to care enough to do something? It means to actually get up and go to where the people are who have been wandering, to go where the people are who have been driven from the church community, from the flock, as it were, to go to where the people are who are being treated with disdain and contempt, who are being treated as though they are small and insignificant and not even worthy of our care, to go where they are, to be with them where they are to invest yourself in being for them. What does that mean? Well, in Ezekiel chapter 34, what God says he's going to do, he says, I'm going to go and I'm going to strengthen them where they're weak. And I'm going to bring healing to where they're broken. And I'm going to bandage up the places where they're hurting. And I'm going to take in the strays and I'm going to feed the hungry. And in general, I'm going to behave towards them in a way that communicates unequivocally to them that God loves and treasures them. That God would be happier to see them come home and engage in a life of following Christ in the community of faith than he would be over all the other ones who showed up every single Sunday. That's what it means to be the greatest. What it means to be the greatest is to adopt an attitude of humility in your spirit that gives up all of your judgments and all of your prejudices and all of your biases and all of the contemptuous ways that we treat other people and belittle them and bully them and plug our nose and begrudgingly tolerate them for as little time as we have to. That just puts aside all of that despicable behavior and learns to prioritize people the way God has prioritized them. The God who keeps them in his presence. The God who always has his, their angels at his disposal. Who is always ready to dispense his care and concern. Who's ready to travel the hills to go and get them and bring them back. And who's happier to have them in his presence and in the midst than over anything else in the entire world. That's what it means to be the greatest. To care enough to go and get the ones. In Jesus' mind, math is pretty simple. The number one is greater than the number 99. And his invitation to us is to start loving and to start living as though that were true. Let's pray together. Father, we're all human. We all have people that we struggle with. We all have relational situations that we find hard, and you know that. We, don't, we confess it, but we don't even need to tell you about it because you already know that it's true. But it says that while we were your enemies, you came for us, when we were the ones wandering. And now having filled us with your love, us having been the recipients of your love, would you fill us with the kind of love that now inspires us to go and get the next one? And Father, to celebrate 
with our full heart when one of those ones come home. Father, this morning we celebrate at the Glenridge location with Kevin, who has wandered far from you in his own way, for his own reasons. He has his own story. We celebrate his baptism together this morning as a community, his coming home. We are happier this morning over Kevin than we are over all of the rest of us who have been here the whole time. And may we now, as we hear Kevin's story and listen to him describe what it is that you have been doing in his life, Father, may we be inspired to be people who go from this place to find the next Kevin and to love them back into your presence. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.